At this time of the new year, many of us are making resolutions of ways in which uh, we would like to improve. One of the ways that uh, we seldom think about is how we think. Uh, often, uh, our mind is not part of our evaluation process. Uh, we use our minds to think moment by moment. Uh, we even are thinking while we're sleeping. And yet, few of us uh, wonder if what we're thinking is correct, or if it should be filtered, or if it should be changed, or if there's anything wrong with the way we think at all. Uh, some of us have erroneously assumed that actions are what count, and thinking has nothing to do with it. But if you remember our Lord in uh, his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, told us that lust, for example, is uh, a thought in one's mind that is equal in gravity uh, to actually acting it out. Or he says uh, regarding uh, hatred toward a person, uh, you might feel as if it's hidden, no one can see whether I hate someone or not. As long as I don't act it out, I'm safe, and yet he warned us that these sins actually begin in our mind and from our heart cause us uh, to be led right into sin. And so I would propose for us uh, not a new vitamin to take, uh, not a new exercise uh, program, uh, but a whole new way of thinking as exhorted to us uh, by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in which he tells us uh, that we need to be changed, and the way in which we will be transformed is by renewing our minds, which means that we're not to tolerate our minds going wherever they wish. Uh, we are actually to feed our minds the right kind of information, and it will change who we are. We will become different people. Look with me as I read from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You can tell from his opening line that he, in chapter 12, is basing this revolutionary exhortation on the first 11 chapters and all that he has revealed regarding God's work in us and his grace and his mercy. In view of God's mercy, in view of his compassion, in light of all that I've been telling you about how God has brought us to salvation and has equipped us by the ministry of his Holy Spirit to follow after him, I exhort you, I encourage you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
Now, when we think of sacrifices in the Bible, we think of dead animals, and we think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And we realize in that situation, they kill the animal first, then they burn it. And so we, we think like, well, I'm not getting killed in this. I'm not getting burned in this. No, he is asking us to make a crisis decision in which we decide, I am going to give myself to God. Now, he focuses on our bodies, but what he is using here by taking uh, the body particularly instead of the whole of one's life and activities is to emphasize, I'm asking you to give me all of yourself, yea, even your body itself. I don't want you to crawl off of this altar. I want you as a sacrifice of praise and devotion to give yourself wholeheartedly, completely to me. There are few decisions uh, that we make like that. Uh, Costco has completely ruined us as far as feeling like a transaction is permanent. Uh, we, when we're walking through Costco now, we go like, well, we can always take it back. They'll take back anything. They'll take it back years later. They'll take it back without a receipt. It's like there's no commitment here at all. Now, my son just bought uh, his first new car. He's graduated from college. He's got a good job now. He's got money flowing in. He lives at home still, so he's got money flowing in. And uh, he wanted to buy a new car, and he had a, a thought, I think I'll go buy such and such a car. And I said, why don't you do research first? You know, I, okay, that's the kind of car you want, but why don't you read about the various competing models and read uh, what various reviewers who are experts in this field are saying about the various cars? And then why don't you go test drive the various cars? So uh, his original thought didn't get very high ratings, and I pointed out to him there was a competing vehicle that had the highest ratings. Why don't you test drive that first and work back to the one you're actually thinking of buying? And so he did that, and as he drove that first car from driving his very old car to that brand new car, he was saying like, oh, well, we can buy this right now tonight. And I'm saying like, wait a second, aren't we going to think this through? Aren't we going to plan? Aren't we going to like research and explore? And don't you want to do due diligence and test drive uh, the other cars? Okay, well, I'll go through the motions, but I love that first car. Every other car he drove after that was now his new favorite car. <laughs> and the first salesman at the first dealership said, we want to be the last car you drive. And unfortunately, he was the first car he drove, and he actually bought the last car he drove uh, because they all seemed so wonderful. And it was a, a brand and a vehicle that he wasn't expecting to buy. It wasn't he even moved to a completely different class of vehicles. It was all because he went through the motions as I was trying to teach him as a father, just like you would say, let me teach you how to change a tire. I was trying to teach him how to buy a car. And I was saying, we, we ought to plan this out. We ought to think this out. We ought to go through this. In this passage, we are asked to reason why it is that we're holding back on God. What is it about us that we're saying, I'm afraid to let go 
and say yes to you without knowing what it is you'll ask me to do. Because I'm not sure I can really trust you. And so I would like to hear your ideas and I'll take them under advisement and I'll process them and I'll think about them. And if I get around to feeling like it, I'll add that to my list of things I'll do. God is not asking us to do that. He has explained for 11 chapters why it is that we should be saying yes to God. And here, as a capstone to that, his exhortation is for us to make a crisis singular decision that we will not go back on of saying, I will put myself, my whole being on the altar and say, I'm yours. I will serve you. That same son who just bought a car also just got engaged. Uh, he has uh, been courting this young lady uh, for a while now. Uh, he has fallen in love. Uh, he has been planning uh, for this as well, and now he has asked her to marry him. Uh, the, the planning uh, still will continue. They thought they were going to get married in about a year or so. Uh, so maybe uh, get engaged in December, get married in January the following year. It's now because of the length of the planning. Uh, you cannot believe how hard it is to plan a wedding. It's going to be a year from April. And so they've got all the time in the world uh, to plan out this wedding. That's something when you make that decision that you don't want to go back on. You don't want to say, will you marry me? And then say, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I want to pull a Costco on you, <laughs> and I want to go back on that. Can I have that ring back? No. Similarly, God doesn't want us to lay ourselves on the altar and say, it's uncomfortable here. This is not what I thought I was bargaining for. I want down. Can I please get down? And no, he's saying... In view of God's mercies, I want, to, I want you to yield your body, the totality of your life and your activities by which your body is that physical expression. I want you to give yourself as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise and devotion, a sacrifice of holiness, a sacrifice in which you want to be pleasing to the Lord. Give yourself as an act of true and proper worship. Now, throughout my life, I've had uh, various pets. At the moment, we don't have any pet, and we're actually saying, isn't it freeing not to have a pet? Uh, but we had a series of dogs, uh, some of which uh, were huge disappointments. Uh, they uh, would not be properly trained. Uh, they, they did not uh, behave, but we have very happy memories of our last dog. She was a collie, and she loved us as we loved her. Uh, she was very eager to please, easy to train. Uh, we lived in Iowa where no one has fences around their yards. Everybody's yard just goes into everybody else's yard. And yet somehow she understood the boundaries of our yard and she would position herself at the highest point on our lot and would circumspectly guard our entire property in all of its lines. The only time she would leave is if one of our neighbors had a party. She was very sociable. 
and she would go to anyone's party in the neighborhood, but she'd dutifully come back. If she stayed too long, they'd call us and say, Cody's at the party, you want to come get her. <clears throat> but she wanted to please. Now, you could sense as you were trying to coach her that she knew when I was approving and knew when I was disapproving. There was a tone of voice I used when I was disapproving in my kids when they imitate me to make fun of dad, to remind people what dad is like. Uh, will speak in my Cody voice in which I am telling her, Cody, no, you're not allowed to do that. But if we can appreciate a pet who can learn to want to please us, how much more so would we say, I understand how pleasing I could be to the Lord if I just wanted to please him. That's a whole new thought for some of us, to say it's not about me, it's about him as my God, my creator, my savior. I want to please him. The controlling descriptions of what this sacrifice is is one, that it's living. We live through this sacrifice. Secondly, that it's holy. It's meant to be a sanctifying experience in which we're set apart for the master's use. And thirdly, that it's pleasing to him, that he accepts our sacrifice because then we will be truly expressing the right kind of worship. The term he uses there is logicon, from which we would get our word logic. It means a reasonable kind of service of worship. We don't normally think that we use our minds this way, but he wants us to use our minds as we are worshiping him in this offer of a sacrifice. It is to be a spiritual sacrifice. It is to be a reasonable service to him. It's an offering leading to a life of service in which we say, I'll say yes. It's giving God a yes ahead of time. It's saying to him, what you want me to do, I will do. It's saying to him, I trust you, I know you, I love you, I'll serve you. The answer is yes. How may I serve you? That's exactly where God wants us. Unfortunately, living in this world, as witnesses for him, we have a competitor for our affections. And it's this entire world system that's controlled by the God of this world, Satan, who desires to distract us from loving and serving God and wants us instead to be caught up in the current of the flow of the world system leading us away from God. He says in verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. It's actually expressed in the passive voice, meaning that we're not to allow ourselves to be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's the default choice. It's what happens if we make no choice at all. We will fit in to the world system. Kids, as they're growing up, do not want to be the unusual kid, the odd kid, the different kid. Every kid wants friends, and every kid wants to fit in. Our culture 
squeezes us into a mold just like jello takes on the shape of the mold that we pour it in. We all become more and more like the world unless we choose to be different. And this is what Paul is asking of us. He is asking on behalf of God, in light of what God has taught us, will you, in advance, make a choice to belong to God? Now, unless you think this is an astronomical choice that no one would ever make, think again about marriage. When we pledge ourselves to our spouses, we pledge ourselves wholeheartedly for the rest of our lives, as long as we both shall live. We say, I'm yours, I'm faithful to you, I will be yours for the rest of my life. That's a choice we don't go back on. That's a choice that we keep. In the same way, on a much higher scale, he's asking us to give ourselves to God himself as a living sacrifice as a well-thought-out decision to serve him worshipfully and to choose not to let the world shape us, but to let God guide us. We're no longer to live the lifestyle of the world. We are not to let it pressure us. We are to be changed. And the way we change is by changing our minds. And this, I think, is perhaps the most revolutionary thought in the entire two verses, is that the means by which God creates this transformation of us is by changing our minds. He says in the second line of verse 2, but be transformed, again, it's written in the passive tense, in the sense that something outside of us is doing the transformation, and it's God himself that is doing this transformation. That word is the word from which we get metamorphosis, of a a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. We are truly being transformed into a new person. We're making a commitment here to be changed by changing the way you think. He says, keep on being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Changing how you think. It's at this point where most of us say, like, I can't control my mind. My mind does whatever it wants. It thinks about whatever it wants. And that is not actually completely true. There are times in which we do focus on something. If we're in an automobile, for example, and we're driving, There's at times at which we almost seem like we're on autopilot, but if something's happening around us and we suddenly say, I need to pay acute attention right now, such as a car moving close uh, to us or or, uh, cutting in front of us or something, we're going to give it our 100% attention because we know our lives are on the line at that moment. If you receive a phone call in the old days when you actually picked up a phone, usually stop what you would be doing and you would take that call and whatever was happening with the kids, that just stopped for a moment, and mom would talk on the phone. Nowadays, nobody calls anybody anymore, unless they're over 40, I suppose. Everybody texts. In fact, what I hear is you're supposed to, if you're wanting to actually talk to them by voice, you're supposed to text them first and say, may I call you? And then if they answer back by text, yes, you may, then you could call them by voice. These new orders of politeness are strange to me. 
But if you were to get a text, let's say, for example, your phone was on silent and it's buzzing in your pocket, even during this meeting right now, for example, you'd say like, well, I felt two buzzes. That means it's a text. That means it's someone important. I better look at it right now. Someone could be dying. I, I have to look right now. We have this sense of urgency in which we change what we're thinking about. We do change our thoughts all the time, whether we believe ourselves or not. And he's asking us to control, to filter, to purify how we think so that we can be transformed. Still don't believe we change our minds to think about what we want to think about? The radio. Almost all of us have radios in our car. And here's the funny thing. You would think that radio would be dead by now. You would think that uh, the iPhone has killed the radio, the iPod, the, the ability to control your music, to pull music uh, from satellites and create playlists and pump that into your car and play that music. The radio has not died because there's something unusual about choosing a station that plays music that you like and letting them choose for you rather than you choosing what's coming up next. And so radio is alive and well, and people are still listening to the radio. Maybe not you, but most people are listening to the radio. Now, the funny thing about these stations is they create a series of songs to induce a particular mood. So on a particular station at a particular time of day, they are serving those people who are feeling sorry for themselves. And they play sad songs. And people don't change the station, the people that are wanting to be sad, because they want to wallow in their sadness and hear the sad songs. It's actually very therapeutic for them. They are going through the various five stages of grief. They're, they're feeling the grief along with the music. Now, what happens if your station starts playing sad songs and you say, I'm not sad today, I'm happy today, I want something cheerful. You change stations, and voila, you change your mood. Isn't it amazing that we can control our moods by the music we play? We can say, I don't want to feel that way, I want to feel differently. I'll change the station. <clears throat> to please my wife, sometimes I'll put music on in the house, and I guess what her mood may be by previous experience and say, I think she liked this kind of music. How often do I get that right? Uh, I'd say like one out of four at the most. I would say three quarters of the time, she goes, what are you playing that for? You thought I would like that? No, <laughs> she's not in that mood. I guess the wrong mood. It's a different kind of mood. Funny thing, she speaks Spanish, I do not. I knew that she was gonna be the next person to drive this car. So I put it on a Christian Spanish station preaching the gospel, and I thought, this'll get her. <laughs> she'll hear the gospel being preached in Spanish, and she'll say something to me. On purpose, she refused to say anything. She knew I'd done it. She knew I'd done it on purpose. I'd done it for her, and she thought, like, I won't say a thing, and it'll drive him crazy. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, what? I didn't get you? You didn't? Notice that the radio station was changed to a station you've never heard in your entire life? No. If we have the ability to change channels on a television set, if we change channels on YouTube, if we change channels of music, 
of radio station, we begin to realize we can choose how we think. And he is saying, I want you to make a conscious choice to filter and to change the way you're thinking because how you think you will become. And he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by your understanding. I want you to have a spiritual input of God's word, prayer, Christian fellowship, and thinking thoughts after God. The way in which you're offering yourself up a, of a whole being as a sacrifice and being transformed will be by bathing your mind with the truth. The time at which I'm most vulnerable is in the middle of the night. So if I wake up at 3 or 3.30, last night I woke up at 2.30. I'd had food that made my stomach upset. And so at 2.30 I was wide awake feeling yucky. And it's hard for me to go to back to sleep in the middle of the night. And so I have to control my mind and think thoughts that will help me relax and go back to sleep. So what will I think about? Now here's the funny thing about the middle of the night is you don't seem to have as much control of your mind as you're trying to consciously fall back asleep as you can during the day. It seems as if every thought, every worry, every concern, every pressure, every stress just floods into your mind in the middle of the night and you have no power at all to withstand them. So sometimes I have to get up and I read. Sometimes I uh, actually bring my phone to bed because it has a light on it and I can actually read scripture laying in bed uh, until I get sleepy. But often what I do is I quote scripture, scripture that I've memorized, that I've hidden my heart so it can remain dark, lights are off, not bothering anybody, thinking thoughts after God. And I know that if I pray, my thoughts will be placed in the right frame of mind and it will relax me. And so I will go through a prayer list in my mind and pray and I'm actually changing my thoughts from stressful or concerns or things I'm upset about or worries I might have into actually productive spiritual work of working through scripture, working through memorization and by praying. What I'm doing is I'm changing the channel, I'm renewing my mind, I'm being transformed as a person. My character is being shaped by a specific choice of choosing what I'm thinking about. Then he says, if you do that, then you will be able to test so as to approve what God's will or his desire actually is. Now, why does he say that? He's saying as he is leading us, he leads us through how he's guiding us as we're controlling our minds. Self-control actually is the capstone of the fruit of the Spirit. As we're controlling our minds and focusing our minds on what we ought to be thinking about, he is shaping us so that as he's laying before us his guidance as to what he would have us do. And that's part of our prayer life. Lord, what would you have me do? You watch Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane facing what he was about to go through. And he 
analyzes now face on what it will be like to bear the wrath of God. And he talks to the father about it. And he says, this cup which I'm about to bear, is there another way? And there isn't any other way. This is the whole reason he came, was to be made sin on our behalf. And he answers back, not my will, but thine be done. I will obey you and go through with the plan. Even though it'll mean you'll reject me, even though it means that I become sin, I will go through this in order to save you and me. As God is leading us in this, he lays before us his will. And he asks us to test this and approve what his will is. To test it means to actually evaluate and choose what is right. In this case, what he's presenting to us as his will is already right. But as we were discussing before, how we have the tendency to want to filter what God suggests to us, to say, uh, do I need a second opinion? Uh, do, do I need to think about this longer? Do, do we both need to talk about this more? Or am I going to say, I've already said yes. The answer is yes again. I was watching television on a strange time of the week. It was on the weekend where nothing good is on. And they were showing uh, a new invention of a Kevlar apron that lumberjacks were supposed to buy. Apparently, I didn't know this was a problem, but lumberjacks, as they are pushing the chainsaw through the log, have a tendency to keep that motion going and occasionally will bump the moving chain against their leg as it finishes out through the log. By wearing this apron that's made of Kevlar fabric, they can protect uh, their thighs, their knees, uh, from getting hit by the chainsaw. And so he says, I will demonstrate how this works. And he fires up the chainsaw, revs it, and lifts his leg up and starts to move the chainsaw down onto his leg. And I started thinking like, do I want to watch this? I have the remote control in my hands. I can easily flip the channels. I don't particularly want to see the chainsaw hit him. But curiosity caused me to say like, but I want to know what happens. And I was thinking like, he wouldn't do this unless he survives. He, he probably knows that this invention is actually going to work. And so he places the flying teeth of this chainsaw right on his thigh and the fabric of the Kevlar catches each of the teeth of the chainsaw, grabs on and holds on without ripping, installs the motor, and the chainsaw stops. And I was thinking like, what a cool invention. That is really nice. His testing of it in front of us on TV was not to see if it worked, but to show us it does work, so buy one. In the same way, God is asking us not to say no to him as our mind is being renewed, as it's being bathed with the truth. He's asking us to say yes to him as he presents to us what he would like us to do. He says it's his good, acceptable, and perfect will. It's first pleasing to God 
designed by him is perfect. And yet it's also the best for us. It's good for us. It should be pleasing to us. And it's perfectly what we want. Why is it that we would reject the God who created us, who knows best for us, and the will that he lays out for us? Why would we not let him have his way with us as he presses upon our hearts what he would have us do? God's will is what's good for us. Sometimes we think we know better. When I was a young married man, uh, I assumed that the things that pleased me would also please my wife. And then I came across Gary Chapman's book, Five Love Languages, and I was reading through that and was reading how not every person has uh, preferences for uh, the importance of the same love languages. And so I said, these two are my top ones, which are yours. And they were two completely different ones. And I began to realize that the way in which I would show my love to her in a way in which she would sense a greater appreciation for it would be a different expression than what I naturally would have guessed if I were evaluating it through my grid of how I would like her to best express her love to me. If that is true, if even as human beings who love each other and are committed to each other have different ways of expressing love to each other, how much more so, even with God, is he going to suggest things to us that we would say, really? That's what you'd like me to do? I'm surprised. I wouldn't have thought of that. But if that's what you'd like me to do, if you're pressing this upon my heart, if you're asking me to do this, I am willing if you will show me this is what you want me to do. And this is how we become different people. We will not have our minds renewed unless we're willing to submit ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We will not be transformed from a new believer who is immature and who has practiced sin up until this point to a mature believer unless we are willing to submit ourselves to him and allow him to have his way with us. It's not going to happen unless there is this crisis decision in which we say, I will give myself to you. And I will allow you to bathe my mind with the truth. Normally when I wash my hands, I just use an ordinary uh, hand uh, sanitizer kind of soap. Uh, but when I'm working on the car, working out in the yard, I get my hands so greasy or so dirty that that soap doesn't cut it. And I, so, I go hunting around the house for some soap that is stronger than my normal soap. I discovered, Carol actually recommended it to me, why don't you try the dish soap with which we wash the dishes? That'll cut grease. And shockingly, it is way better than other stuff I've used. My dad, when he would work on cars, used to have a bar of soap called lava. It actually had... Uh, the pumice from lava that was crushed inside of it was all scratchy and everything. And if you rubbed your hands on, on that scratchy soap, you could actually, it was probably scraping the pores of your skin, but at least you could get the grease off and wash your hands. Sometimes we get ourselves so dirty that it takes a lot of bathing to get ourselves clean. And it's the same way with our minds. We have to renew our minds by constantly feeding our minds the truth. So often, we are allowing ourselves to believe things that are not true 
and should not be entertained. Take your scripture and turn to Philippians chapter 4. And notice in that passage, it describes to us uh, the need for us to filter what we allow our minds to think. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 8, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That means that there are kinds of thoughts that will pop in our minds that we have to dismiss and say, that shouldn't be here. I'm going to replace it with true thoughts, for example, or, or honorable thoughts or lovely thoughts. If you read the context of Philippians 4, there's disunity in the body, particularly because two pillars of the church are not getting along with each other. Yuri and Syndiki are not in harmony with each other, and he's exhorting the rest of the congregation to come beside them and to help them reconcile. If you took verse 8 in light of that particular conflict, you would realize that what Yodia is thinking of Syntyche has to go through the filter of what is true, meaning that some of the things that she is thinking about Syntyche have never been actually established as true. It's just a suspicion. Or secondly, honorable. Some of these thoughts don't even rise to the level of being worthy to consider. It's not even honorable. What's right, what's pure, what's lovely. You could keep going through this and say, I can't think these thoughts about my sister because they don't pass these tests. Or go to 1 Corinthians 13 about what love is. And you will say, once again, I'm not allowed to be thinking these thoughts without filtering it through the process of what love demands of me. A great New Year's resolution for us would be to say, I'm going to change the way I think because I'm not going to grow spiritually unless I do. I have to say yes to God before I even know what it is that he might ask of me. That means I have to give my all to him on the altar, and I have to give even my body the instruments through which I will carry these things out. I have to give my whole being as a living sacrifice. I can't crawl down. I have to stay there on the altar and say, I've given myself to you. And I have to let him change me, transform me into a new person, like a caterpillar into a butterfly, as an immature believer into a mature believer. That will happen by renewing my mind, changing the way I'm thinking, by allowing the Lord to bathe my mind with the truth, rejecting thoughts that do not belong, and replacing them with thoughts that are helpful, encouraging, and bring glory to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you tonight and ask on behalf of what we've been reading in the scripture, we need your help. Uh, this would not be easy for us at all. This would be very difficult. And yet, we can see this is what you're asking for us in light of your compassion and mercies and the way in which you have worked in our lives. Oh, Father, I would ask that you would help us there. 
for, to be able to lay ourselves before you in such a way that we would be willing uh, to analyze how we've been thinking. If we've been assuming responsibility we should not have assumed, if we've been taking roles that aren't ours, if we have been thinking ill of other people without evidence, oh, Father, I pray uh, that you would change us. Tell us the truth. Help us to be those who want to read your word and want to apply your word, want to commune with you in prayer, want to lean on you, want to pour our hearts out before you, and want to feel the love, the acceptance, the forgiveness, the joy that you pour into our heart. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. And we ask that you would bless us as we seek to be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.